0: somebody asked me the other day like would you want to run carvana as a business for sure not like i it's so operation intensive i mean
1: we're gonna bleep that part out (laughs) (laughs) what's up everyone this is car dealership guy you're listening to the car dealership guy podcast which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market before we start i need your help to grow the car dealership guy community please take a second to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating below so that more people can benefit from this content All right, let's get into today's show. Chris Coleman is co-founder of Clutch, a fintech startup founded in 2020 with the purpose of creating digital lending experiences for credit unions. Prior to founding Clutch, Chris co-founded a company called Carlypso, which was ultimately acquired by Carvana in 2017. In this conversation, we spoke about selling Carlypso to Carvana, how to get the lowest interest rates when buying a car, founding and growing his new startup Clutch, why Carvana was able to pay top dollar for your car in 2021, and will Carvana actually survive. Here's my conversation with Chris Coleman. All views of Car Dealership Guy and any guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Car Dealership Guy or any guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, Chris, great to have you here. From Stanford to used cars. I mean, what the fuck? Like, how how does that happen? (laughs) Please explain this to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it it wasn't quite that uh, direct a leap, but yeah, uh, my parents had the same question. Um, yeah, so I met a co-founder, Nick, at uh, Stanford Business School. I had actually always been a car enthusiast growing up, and so um, I, I worked for a number of random car companies, too, by the way. So I was always trying to figure out whether there's actually a career in cars. So I worked for McKinsey, thinking I would get to work uh, you know, as an ex- exec at car companies. Didn't happen. I worked all sorts of other random things, including casinos, which obviously has nothing to do with cars. Then I followed a boss to this company called Coda Automotive. Do you ever remember hearing about them? I don't. They they were like uh, they were trying to import this car from China and electrify it. The whole thing turned out to be somewhat not a scam, but like they could never as close to a scam as not a scam. It was like this this car <laughs> that was made in China that didn't really meet US crash regulations, It required a ton of re-engineering, that required scaling up this battery joint venture that never quite worked. And so uh, it was a great experience, not a good outcome. Um, and so I went to Stanford trying to figure out whether there's still a career to be had in cars or do something else. Um, I met Nick there. And in between my first and second year, I actually got my dream job, which is working at McLaren. Um, and so I worked in the UK, launching their road cars division. It turns out that making exotic sports cars also really hard business. It's not like even though you make a ton of gross margin on the car, it's like... Uh, it's actually more like fashion than it is cars. Um, and so it's, it's very tough to know what's fashionable and what's not. Um, and so sort of fell into that trap again and then met Nick. And the one thing that we did know consistently throughout throughout all this is, hey, there's money in the dealership space. And so if there is an angle to be attacked, maybe there's an angle from this sort of peer to peer market that that we thought could exist for individuals who wanted to sell their cars. And so that's what sort of spawned. We started this business called Carlypso and happy to go into depth of what that was like.
1: Yeah. So your your new company, of course, is called With Clutch and maybe not so new anymore. I mean, you've been operating, you founded several several years ago, but I, I think it's important to tell the audience, I mean, you, in a way, I would say you pioneered a segment of this market um, with, again, I'm, I'll let you explain what Carlypso was, but fascinating model. And I think there's been several spinoffs of it since, but go ahead. Yeah.
0: The, it's funny in like 2013, everybody started realizing you might be able to sell used cars online. It was a year that like all these quote unquote big startups popped up. So we had us, we had Vroom, we had Shift and we had Carvana. All of us actually started from pretty different places of like what the key was. Mm-hmm. And I think even Carvana is like what the key was is very different than people think it is. And so we started from this place of, Hey, the problem we want to solve is the peer to peer market. We think that individuals can more easily sell their cars into this market. And if we can sort of cut out middleman expenses through some sort of tech, and I can get into what that was, then we can facilitate these peer-to-peer transactions more
1: easily. So you mean, again, peer-to-peer, you just mean like a private sale. I sell my car to you. You sell your car to me.
0: Yeah, exactly. the, The goal of the company was to try and get people who otherwise would have traded in a car to be like, you know what, it's just as easy to sell it peer to peer. And so why don't I do that? And therefore I'll get more money. That was the whole theory behind it. And the way we did this is we like installed these, you know, lock boxes and GPS trackers on these cars. We would monitor all the test drives and do all the marketing for that individual's car. Um, we actually ended up going to Y Combinator for that experience. And we ended up reaching a peak of like 50 or 60 cars. It was an absolute nightmare. Like it was, the it was the
1: worst 50 business or 60 cars, 50, 60 cars sold a, day, a month, sold a month, sold a month.
0: And it, it was yeah. it's literally the worst business you could start. Like if you told me to do anything else, <laughs> I would literally do anything else at this point. If you're like, <laughs> sell toilet paper, <laughs> I would glad, I would be like, that's a much better business.
1: Let's do it. So what was so difficult, right? Was it, you know, plenty of people buy and sell cars every day, plenty of dealers. And so what specifically made it so difficult about this peer to peer model? It's the wrong market to select into. It's like all the
0: worst things that you can get compounded. And so anyone buying, like part of the problem is there's no room for you to make money. And let me let me explain why. And so like if you, mm-hmm. if you are captivated by the marketing message of get more for your car, that means that you want more money for your car than you could have got in a dealership, right? So you already have that expectation of higher transaction value. If you're buying in the private market, chances are you're trying to get a lower transaction value. And so... The individuals here are both willing to spend quite a lot of time to make sure that's true. And they value their time less than you value your time. And so inherently what happened is people buying would would just consume a ton, a ton of hours trying to get this car to be as cheap as possible. And the people selling obviously wanted the most money. And so in all of these cases, you ended up adversarial to both counterparties. And no matter what you offered of of value, quote unquote, like there were other ways to make money. Like, you know, you could make money on financing contracts or on selling warranties and things like that. But it's pretty hard to insert yourself in there without physically taking possession of the car. And that's something we didn't want to do because if we started doing that, we're like, okay, now if we if we go down that road, we may as well just be a dealership because then we don't have all these this two sided satisfaction problem. We haven't self selected into the wrong market, and so you kind of end up in nowhere land of neither side values the service you may provide to the level that makes sense economically. And so like, we, we just made very little per car.
1: Mm-hmm. So you go to Carvana, right? Carvana acquires Carlypso. Yes. And I what I'm really curious about is the transition from going to work at Carvana and ultimately, right, like years down the road, founding a company that focuses on credit unions, right? The thing that first thing that comes to my mind is, okay, Chris had some insight while at Carvana, something told him, hey, this is an unmet opportunity in the market, right? But let's kind of break it down step by step, how you went from Carlypso to Carvana and what that you know transition uh, was like for you.
0: Yeah, there's actually, like, it's actually a stair step. So let's go through the full stair step too. So with Carlypso, we started with this peer-to-peer model that didn't work. And we knew it didn't work at the end of Y Combinator. Like, we, Y Combinator was like, you know, do things that don't scale. We took it way too literally and didn't do anything that scaled. And so at the end of it, like some of our employees, one of our employees still has like PTSD from answering phone calls. Like he won't answer a phone call anymore (laughs) because he's so like, he's so distraught by what happened to him during this, this phase. And so at that point we said, Hey, why don't we actually just try and direct sale cars from auctions? And so we'll cut out this two-sided model. We'll only serve buyers. And since these auctions are like price set marketplaces now we have almost unlimited selection. So if somebody says, hey, I want X car, then we can simply find X car in the marketplace. We'll, we'll figure out effect, effectively how to SEO these aggregators. And so we would basically take every car that was in Mannheim or Odessa, cross-reference how it would rank on sites like Car Gurus and see what existing inventory was there, and then choose to advertise a select number of VINs to generate a ton of leads. That's so like the first thing that happened. Okay, so was,
1: this this is important, right? Because I get asked all the time. People are like, "Hey, can can consumers buy from auctions?" and and I mean, this was like ten years ago, right? Yeah. And so this yeah. is not anything new. But uh, keep going. I mean, I'm just really intrigued. Like, tell us, you know, about this experience. You know, what worked, what didn't. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah. So at, at the time, what happened was all these Nissan Leafs came off lease, and Nissan had completely screwed up the residual. And so we could we would see that these Leafs were transacting. In wholesale for like 10 to 13 grand and people's buyouts were like 17 20 grand and so we started listing these leafs being like hey they're you know 13 grand you can get a leaf and we'll make good money at 13 grand and so we'd put these leafs on or other cars that sort of met these metrics and they would immediately show up top of cargurus rankings and we would generate a ton of phone calls and someone would call in super confused being like hey i'm coming down to your lot we'd have to explain we definitely don't have a lot please don't come here here's the deal and a lot of people were freaked out, but for every you know, for every three freaked out people, there was one person who was willing to go ahead with it. And so, sure enough, like the first car we sold was this Nissan Leaf to a guy who already had a leaf that was turning in his lease. The guy was like in his mid-70s, and he's like, Ah, eh, screw it, it's worth trying it out. Shows up super happy. That was super easy. And so he's just started doing more and more of this. And so th- that model ended up being a lot easier because you don't have this like two-sided audience you need to serve. You're totally impartial about the inventory, but we kept getting deeper and deeper into is you're like, you still need all the things that a car dealership has, right? Like you still need to do the reconditioning. And so like EVs inherently need less reconditioning. So starting there was much easier than as we got into more and more complicated cars. The thing that's sort of where we tapped out is, you know, like all businesses, you think whenever you start, it's going to just completely keep going. And what happened was there was a limited audience at the time. It was like willing to completely buy online who met the credit profile that we had. And so we could reach a point of sort of 100 to 150 cars in San Francisco, but we could never break through that wall. It was like we had a decent, you know, it was a a decent small dealership that advertised online that could have been profitable within a few markets. And that was like, yeah, but we were a venture-backed company.
1: But the key here is like, you didn't actually own the inventory or it didn't sit on your balance sheet. Correct.
0: Yeah. We got flooring for the inventory. And so like our, our turn time on a car was like seven days. And so, um, the flooring companies all got super confused. They're like, Hey, you're paying this off way too quickly. We're like, well, the car's gone. And they're like, well, and they, you know, they do these audits. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been through like a flooring yeah. company audit, but then they come and they look for all the inventory. They're like, where is it? We're like we sold it. We keep telling you guys, like this, like we already bought it and we already sold it. It's it's out of like it's done at this point. And they they ended up confused. And each time we'd have to explain to the new auditor who came around what was happening because also he expected like a dealership lot and we had a tiny
1: warehouse. How did the auctions feel about you advertising the cars? Just like you know the consumers and you know Mannheim. Did they give you any flack for that?
0: uh progressively yes and so i I mean the reality is it works out great for the auction so it actually isn't beneficial for them and i think in some ways they'd love to do it they just can't up can't end up in this environment where actually everybody's doing it and somebody is simultaneously selling because a lot of dealers actually would sell the same car that they also had at auction and so they would continue to list that car in hopes that someone might you know at the last minute come through and pull through on that car that's now getting sent to wholesale um, and so we got a few, you know, angry dealer calls of why is your car listed here? And so the, th- the things we did, the, th- the auction company got mad at us saying, hey, look, you can't advertise these explicit VINs. And so just don't do that. And so what we ended up doing is actually creating these synthetic VINs that would go on the aggregators and then putting this huge disclaimer in the ads themselves saying, hey, this is not the exact car. There are There's a car that is exactly of the specification that that you can
1: buy. And that, that worked. I didn't know you can create synthetic VINs. You learn something (laughs) new every day. (laughs) So tell us about the transition to Carvana. Yeah,
0: good point. Um, and so we got to a point where we said, this business is not going to scale. And so the reality is for Carlipsa, we, we sort of came to a point where we knew we wanted to sell the business. And so we're saying, look, it doesn't scale. Um, we have this asset which was effectively we had built all these tools that scraped the auction sites, and that could pull in exact details about each of the VINs. And so one of the things about consumers buying online is like a lot of our consumers were buying thirty thousand dollar plus luxury cars, and so they're like, hey, I want a, you know I want a seven series and it's got to have rear heated seats and the massagers in front and the M Sport pack. And so you had to be able to get a you know a sales guy off the street to be able to do all this. Without actually knowing each and every car in full intimacy, and so we developed these like uh, almost these like window sticker like tools that would break apart the window sticker or the options and features for each car on a VIN level, and we could do that for like eighty percent of VINs. Not every not every VIN, not every VIN mattered either. Like Hondas didn't matter, um, and so Carvana was interested in that ability to do that. They're like, hey, if we could do this. Then it improves how we merchandise our cars we also sell cars online so have these same issues because often they would end up with you know describing a car that had heated seats that didn't actually have it because the guy walking around the car just made a mistake um and obviously you end up with a very upset customer when that happens and that was like anchoring feature for them um and so we ended up talking to carvana in like early 2017 before their ipo and so we had these conversations of sort of what's the technology we have, what would fit into Carvana, what makes sense and why, and then um, the transaction eventually went through in sort of May of that year. Um, and then me and like it was me and Nick were co-founders of the business. Nick at first we were like, okay, let's just get the business sold, and let's figure out what we're going to do in the building. So we actually had no idea what our role would be in Carvana. It was like whatever the role is, like if they want us to you know, clean the windows. Let's just get this thing through the door and clean <laughs> windows for three years. That's fine. Um, and so we got the deal through the door. Part of that was Nick was going to go work in buying cars for consumers. Um, which he was very half-hearted about at first because we had tried something similar at Carlypso and it didn't work that well in that environment. Um, worked phenomenally well at Carvana for different reasons. Why is that? Why did it work so well, Carvana? Carvana was spending on, on, like, it was a windfall of marketing dollars that they were already spending to sell cars. And we were trying to kickstart one marketing message at Carlypso. So like when we ran a bunch of early experiments to buy cars for consumer, we would run a bunch of advertising around, hey, we want to buy your car. Or we'd contact random people on Craigslist who were already selling and be like, hey, we want to buy your car. None of that worked in isolation, but Carvana was doing like very broad-based marketing on TV. And the message people got was kind of car, car, car. Uh, and as a result of that, there was a natural windfall in people who wanted to sell their car and were going there anyway. And so the problem was different. It wasn't finding marketing leads. The problem was actually monetizing the funnel. Um, and so like the issues Nick had to deal with at Carvana were not generating net new interest or volume. And that was a problem we dealt with at so that we couldn't solve. Um, And so it was this natural like byproduct of being associated with a large scale dealership that you got this inherent volume anyway.
1: Yeah. And I mean, Carvana has been tremendously successful at buying from public. You know, I think it's debated on the valuations they put on cars throughout different periods. Did you guys work on their valuation model? Was that part of your your team? And you know, we're going to put you on the spot over here. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. There's actually, there's multiple, there were two valuation models in the building when I was there. And so the one that would, the, the valuation model for buying cars from consumer was actually different than the valuation model for buying through wholesale auction. And so I worked very closely with the team that did valuation for buy from auction. And um, I worked... Semi closely with a team that was buying direct from consumer, but like the triggers were different and the way the inventory mix was looked at was different. And arguably, you actually got different cars too. Like the cars you got from buy from consumer were arguably older. You had a higher condition variance. Uh, they tended to be less pricing benchmarks internally. And so they were more unique SKUs. Now, like auctions, auctions in some way were a little easier because you had like generally anything you bid on, you had some pricing benchmarks from other things that were similar in inventory. They tended to be less unique SKUs, And so you couldn't get it that far off. And three, you always had this, like it was a simultaneous auction. So you you could never pay that much more than someone else was paying because you didn't pay your highest willingness. You paid N minus one. Like that's the inherent nature of the auction versus you could end up
1: paying your highest willingness and buy from consumer. Explain to me like a third grader. How how did Carvana manage to, you know, out just outcompete the market with their, you know, relatively high offers throughout the last three, four or five years? Right. Like, just break that down for us very simply.
0: Yeah. I mean, like Carvana is actually like the, the way to think about the business. And this was the eye opening part from moving there from Carlypso is at Carlypso, we tried to sell to almost all uh, prime credit buyers. And they were a terrible audience for online car buying. Like they're terrible because they have great alternatives everywhere else, and so like if you if you try and sell a Mercedes C Class to a prime buyer, you're being compared to a Mercedes CPO program, and then you're like, why would you buy from you know rando me versus Mercedes CPO? Mercedes has great dealerships. They're not like bad. They're not bad operations. You know nobody's getting beat in the back room as people like to portray. The car comes with a warranty from the manufacturer, Um, and so like it's it's actually a good option, and people know two things one is they know what other cars they can get they know that they can afford them so there's no question of affordability and then b they generally know the financing rate that they should get and so they're not being you there's no there's no opportunity to make a lot of margin on these consumers and then the online model is arguably not better for them you're like okay here's the trade-offs you can wait for your car you're not going to know the condition with any certainty until it arrives And, um, it's not going to have this OEM warranty that you might get from a dealership. And so you're like, is that really better? Like if if I can walk into a Mercedes dealer, get my car the same day, I know the rate I'm going to get. Um, and like, I can walk out with a car and know the condition at the moment I see it. It's really, it's really not it's not like you avoid any major step in the process by buying online. You still have to do all the same steps. You can't avoid any step of buying. Um,
1: and so I think that, that and I'm, assuming that's a, gonna, I'm assuming you're going to, I'm assuming you're going to contrast this to sub or near prime.
0: Yes. Yes. Which is a different audience. <laughs> like if you take subprime, subprime is actually the best audience to serve online. Um, and the reason being like, think about the experience from a consumer from this standpoint, like if you're a subprime consumer, you actually have real uh, what I'll call like budget risk. So you walk into a dealer, you actually don't know what you can afford with the high degree of certainty. And so, you know, roughly the down payment and roughly the payment you can afford, but a lot of, A lot of times that's contingent on what the finance company will extend to you in credit. And so you actually await your answer from the dealer, but you still want to buy a car that you went in for. And so you may enter a dealership being like, I want to walk out of here with this, you know, 2015 Chevy Tahoe. But when financing terms come across, the guy behind the sales desk is going to convince you that you actually need a 2013 Volkswagen Beetle. And you're like, well, because he's only got 50 cars on the lot. The financing came back awkward. <laughs> you have to go through this embarrassing exercise in which he tries to convey that the Beetle's a good stepping stone car for you. And, and that, like Carvana just kind of made that experience much, much more palatable because you could get financing rates on everything. And there was enough inventory where if the Tahoe didn't work out. Stepping back from a Tahoe was easier to figure
1: out what you could get. I'm going to cut you off for a second, but how does that translate to paying, you know, $20,000 for a 2013 Civic with 110,000 miles?
0: Good question. (laughs) So A, you can make, you can, you make more money on, on, uh, higher finance rates, right? So there's only so much you can mark up the spread on a prime buyer. So if you have, you know, DCU or the biggest credit unit at one point was offering something like 1.49% interest rates. There's only so much money you could mark that up and still remain competitive to finance any car, right? And so um, so your ability to make margin spread on the loan is very limited on the prime segment. Then B, the prime segment has a lower attach of products. And so like you don't, if you could, you don't need to buy a warranty. Which,
1: which just means that all it means is that they're not going to buy as many warranties and, you know, aftermarket products as a subprime consumer may.
0: Correct. Correct. And and so th- those two things, like you may make limited margin on the front end of the car, but between financing margin and product margin, you can sort of forward calculate what you expect to make on those two elements. And you can price the car in such a way that you might discourage prime buyers and encourage subprime buyers to buy that car. Um, and so like pri- a prime buyer is looking at price of vehicle and they roughly know the financing rate. And if they finance, they'll pay what the payment is. Right. A subprime buyer is looking at a payment-based purchase. And so they're not even like the price is almost irrelevant because there's so much else that goes in the monthly payment of what matters for that consumer, in addition to can they get over the down payment threshold of do they have enough money to actually enable the transaction at all? And so like, the buying dynamics are just very different between these two audiences. And so there is the ability A to do some price discrimination. So you can select into this audience and not that one and then b your ability to mark up these loans is better on this non prime audience and so where you might make you know 2% on a prime buyer that can, that can be you know 6 to 10% on a subprime buyer mm-hmm. and you i mean you see that in carvana's financial statement right like the the biggest driver of of margin for them is being able to build this entire stack of of if they had to survive on
1: front end margin alone it's not a
0: business mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's definitely the the rates that we're seeing, and especially now. And it's always been, you know, the the subprime customer has always been a payment shopper. You know, they're 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 shopping for financing. They're not shopping for car necessarily. Car is important, but it's much less important. Correct. And so, I think that that that's something that helps people understand, right? They see like, oh, Carvana, you know, quote unquote, overpaid for my car, but did they really? Right? Like, let's look at the business. It's a vertically integrated business. They have. It's like five businesses in one. It's like, that's right. You know, it's like in, in that sense where, you know, Amazon is vertically integrated, I guess you could say it's similar, um, but that enables them to, you know, pay more for that car under certain circumstances. And, you know, they do have a disproportionately, their audience is disproportionately skewed towards subprime and bad credit. And so like everything you're saying makes sense now, but here's what I want to understand, right? So you, you have this insight now, I'm going back, you know, a couple of years here, you're at Carvana. You see that subprime is a lot more lucrative. It just, that's the reality of the business. And, and then you go to credit unions, which is like the peak epitome of like cream of not, the crop. Like I have amazing <laughs> credit. Like, don't fuck with me. So how, how does that happen?
0: Yeah. Um, here, here's how it happens. So like, uh, it's, it's not all like a, there's a spectrum. So it's not like all subprime prime. So there's not only two audiences, a full spectrum of the audience. I think the, the insight was, hey, the financial products end up being the key profit drivers here. And then B, one of the other insights was a lot of buyers, they don't think about this too hard. And so like whatever the, whatever the rate was, one reason Carvana could exert control is because people didn't shop around for financing. Like Carvana only offered its own financing through their own pages. And so you, you either kind of went with it or not. People were not shopping, figuring out what is the true market rate of what my credit should get me across all these other lenders. Um, and so what we said is if we look at the best lenders, right, like the cheapest cost of capital is actually credit unions. And the reason that's true is why is it they, yeah. they're not for profits. And so the credit the credit union effectively has to return slightly more than a treasury yield on their book of loans. And so there, there were bank there were like a banking system set up in the early 1900s where they're effectively a cooperative. They exist for the benefit of their members, which is anyone who has a loan or deposit with the institution. And so what that means is they effectively run uh, a, a net zero bank. So a like if you so their if,
1: cost of capital is cheaper
0: is cheaper. exactly. exactly. They're getting they're getting deposits at near for free from consumers. They have to return some interest yield, but they don't pay profit on the interest yield, and so therefore you're you're roughly net benefited by that uh, not for profit spread. Um, and I and mean, credit unions do like twenty five a third of used auto loans. By the way, they're they're a huge. Segment that was of what auto I was going
1: to say. Yeah, it's like a third of used auto loans. And so, it, like, if I'm a consumer in the market today, right, and and I'm a dealer, and you know, we get credit customers that come with credit union checks all the time. We also work with credit unions, but. If I'm a consumer today, or if you know, if if a consumer, right, you, your your mother wants to buy a car, she tells you, "Hey Chris, I want to buy a car, and I'm going to finance it one way or another." Like, what would you tell her to do?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah, the good question. There's there's many ways to go about that process. Like the the old way would be, "Hey, go get a pre approval from a credit union, walk into the dealership, um, pick the car you want, show them this, you know, you, use the financing that you have from the credit union, and." Some credit unions will issue checks. A lot don't do that because it's a fraud vector. Still, there is another way, which is simply if if you demand that the dealer uses a credit union that you already know, they can go that route. They they have indirect channels already. And so you can walk into the dealership and say, hey, I want to finance through, you know, uh, Viridian Credit Union. And most credit unions who are connected on Cuddle or who have dealer track or others can still send loans that way. They're of any sort of large or medium size. Your smaller, your smaller dealerships may not be connected to credit unions. That's arguably not where you're getting your car anyway. Um, but like my recommendation would be go into a good dealership that's connected with credit unions already through Cuddle or through Dealer Track. Pick one of these credit unions. You can see the advertised rates for prime credit and we'll walk out with a great car loan.
1: So if I do that, I can't buy through Carvana. You
0: can still buy through Carvana, but it'd be convoluted. And so here here's 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 part of the process. And so the problem the problem with car financing is that you have this asset that has all these paper documents associated, which is like this mortgage is the same. Mortgage is even more antiquated if you've ever been through a mortgage, but like effectively the vehicle title is this piece of paper that needs a bunch of random signatures on it to establish chain of custody. The the strange part is the title actually becomes electronic often when it goes to DMV. And so there's the electronic liens. Which will say, "Hey, Chase actually has ownership in this car," once the paperwork is filed. And so, if you were to want to buy through Carvana and finance your credit, you can still do that, but the process would be different. You'd buy through Carvana, you'd go with Carvana financing. Thirty days later, you'd refi that loan. So you'd go to your local credit union and say, "Hey, I want to. I have this deal with Carvana. I want to switch that loan for this loan." And that's something that's very easy to do. It's actually easier. Like the refi process is much easier than the car
1: buying process because of the CLT. What's the the bear thesis for credit unions, right? I think we know that clearly the bull thesis is that, I mean, it's just cheaper cost of capital. And I've been very vocal about it. You know, we clearly work with credit unions, dealers, any normal reputable dealer will work with credit unions. I'm seeing that, you know, the spreads between a credit union and a traditional lender nowadays are like, you know, two Huge. to three points. Huge, it's very, very, very significant. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but like, wh- what's the bear thesis here, right? Like, wh- why does this not work out or why, why does this peak or not scale beyond like, you know, mega proportions?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple cases. So, and I think not, not all credit unions are impacted the same way. If you look at like, there's uh, if you look at banking, there's kind of three segments of banks too. There's mega banks. Uh, there's regional banks and community banks, and then there's credit unions. I, I think the sector I'd actually worry most about is that middle sector because they have none of the scale and none of the advantage of the other end. Um, the The credit unions, the, the credit unions I worry most about are the small credit unions, where like you, it's very hard to get out the, of this. Those are the ones that you were you worry about them the most. You said I worry about small credit unions a lot. Yes, and the reason the reason being is because. They're not of a scale where they can then get out and like make these investments that are substantial in order to like do this modernization to remain on par with a Chase or a Wells Fargo. And, and you need to continue to attract deposits. And so you need to attract deposits in order to be able to do lending. Lending, I think, is actually your strongest advantage. I think deposits tend to be a more commodity product, right? Like if you do checking, do you really care where your checking account is? It just has to function as a checking account and be easy. But at the same time, it has to be easy, and so to do that, you need to make these investments in technology to allow people to use their checking account in an easy way. And it's just harder to make these investments if you're small scale, right? Like some of the largest fintech companies will bend over backwards to work with Chase, but if you only have you know 4,000 members or 4,000 potential customers, no one's even chasing you as a potential buyer of this technology, and so it's very hard to serve. That segment in a way that makes sense for the technology provider and for the credit union. And the credit union's left a little bit handicapped mm. with antiquated tools, trying to get people to sign up for their services. They've already got limited branch or other reach. And so these smaller credit unions, the trend you're seeing is maybe 20 years ago, there were about 10,000 credit unions. Currently, there's about 5,000. And so they tend to merge and consolidate into larger and larger assets. The biggest credit unions tend to think more like banks. And so the larger the credit union, the more it becomes focused as this like this larger, efficient, high investment institution. Um, And so like it's it is in everyone's benefit to get some scale as a credit union. The, the, The bare case is just like, can you do that quickly enough? And can you remain competitive with mega banks who seem to be drawing in all these assets?
1: Do you think the traditional lenders, like now that rates are, you know, significantly higher than they were one, two, three years ago, do you think that traditional lenders, you know, the capital ones and, uh, you know, the allies or whoever, right, publicly traded, um, have, you know, lots of leverage when it comes to cost of capital? Like, how do they survive, um, at least in the prime segment versus the credit unions over the next couple of years?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think everyone needs to survive everywhere. And so I don't think that needs to be true for them to still have great businesses. I think the other thing about lending is lending tends to be highly cyclical, right? And so some of these very well run businesses, like Ally, is a great example of Ally understands this. That they're not like in some ways, Carvana got a little caught off guard by the cyclicality of just how quickly lending swung from one side to the other. And I mean, it's not like they're the only ones who got caught off guard. The Fed's never raised mm-hmm. rates at the at the rate that it had raised rates, but they. Both A, made big investments at that time, and then B, got hit by this, which tends to impact profit. But allies has been through these cycles before, and so they understand, like, hey, when rates are low, things are going to be great. When there's this environment where things are changing very rapidly, it's going to be more confusing. We may need to get in and out of some of these segments that we've served in certain times well, and like we maintain that flexibility, and they've been good at that. That's why they've been around a long time as a business. Um, and Mm -hmm. so like when, when rates are near zero, people tend to be less sensitive as rates go up. They tend to be more sensitive because each marginal point impacts them more. Um, and so like, I think credit unions will thrive in this environment as people become more rate sensitive. Um, and that's like a great time for them. And then Ally, as rates go down, Ally will come back and reserve that prime segment very well.
1: So I think, I think it's a good natural progression into your current company with clutch, um, you know, what are you guys doing specifically for credit unions? And, you know, how is that going to help consumers? Can you give us some background on the thesis for the company?
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the thesis for the company is that credit unions are the best lenders and they should be capturing more share of wallet of debt. Like that's a thesis in a nutshell. And the reason they're not capturing more share of debt is just they've been harder administratively to deal with. And so we're trying to facilitate how credit unions can execute loans both from a consumer standpoint and from an internal operations standpoint. Like there's both how easy is it to apply and then there's how easy is it to actually book from the people doing the work in the back office. Um, And so we're trying to serve both of those. Like both of those are our customers in some ways.
1: Tell me, you know, in five years, right, you guys have scaled and you've empowered more credit unions, right? How How has that changed the car buying experience, the car business, right? Like what's the impact that you guys have made in five years?
0: Yeah, I mean I mean I, th- I think th- there's a couple things. A, um I think Credit Unions should have a much larger market share of auto loans than they currently do. And so like it's sh- it should be people find other areas to compete on the fringes of credit unions and p- a lot of other lenders shouldn't be nearly as competitive. Right? Like credit unions should be financing a much larger portion of loans than they're currently financing. A, and then B, a, a huge portion of that should also be direct. Like the ability to both uh, refinance debt that's not "quote unquote" optimal, and so as consumers get better credit, credit unions should be able to yield and, and get that opportunity more easily. So if you were if you were an Ally customer, but now you've made you know 15 payments on time, we should be able to refi that loan and discover that loan very easily if you're a credit union member, and that should be a compelling reason to be a credit union member, is that there's this there's this sort of active watching out for you for all your debt portfolio. I think it's not just cars, though. Too. I think the other manifestation is even if you look at a platform like Credit Karma, like you won't see a you won't see a credit union on Credit Karma, which is like super puzzling because why? Yeah, because why? Why none is of that? them can connect to it. Like they cannot connect to Credit Karma. They don't have APIs. There's no way to connect to the balance sheet of a credit union. And so, like that technology infrastructure still needs to be built out. Um, and yet, often, like if you look at some of these lenders. All they do is resell portfolios to credit unions. And so there's many lenders who will literally aggregate traffic from karma, repackage that and resell that debt to credit unions. And that's like the, the strangest sort of middleman intermediary that you could have, where if you said, hey, if the credit union can simply direct connect to these consumers and connect to the largest sort of places that consumers get financing, then we should be able to grow the balance sheet of credit union lending mm-hmm. across the board so if you're looking for a personal loan and you're near prime or prime, that should be a credit union loan. If you're looking for an auto loan in any direct origination channel,
1: that should be a credit union loan. But does that dry up? I mean, do they have enough funds and capital to fund, I mean, these trillion dollars of loans that we're putting out there? I mean, what, what is that much point of maturity? Yeah. I'm sure some investors have asked you this at some point because that's yeah. the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, so there's this large addressable market, but you know how much capital do these credit unions really have?
0: Yeah. I mean, the good news is it varies hugely by credit union, right? So, like, some credit unions hit lending caps and have done so. Others still have plenty of dry powder. Um, You're always playing as a lender, you're always playing this two sided game, which is like, I need to get deposits uh, in order to do lending. And the way you get deposits is two ways either A, you like provide great banking services that people can trust. And I think credit unions have a lot of growth strategy there as well, or B, that you can also pay high rates which are things like you know CD accounts and things like that. And they often pay above market in those accounts as well because they can effectively, anything you're making from your lending book, you can effectively distribute a portion of that to those high-yield CDs too. And so they do have a way, they have to play a balancing game of, hey, I want to grow my lending book, but I also need to figure out how to grow deposits as well. And I think the more success they can have in marketing as a whole, the more confident they'll be in growing both ends of this book. So if you look at a lot of credit unions today, they're a little bit gun-shy on marketing. And the reason being is because they don't have great digital distribution paths. So if you attract a consumer, like some of our credit unions, you can't even open accounts digitally. So if you were to market for digital loans, Mm. you may say, hey, I want to go out and I want to find somebody who needs a personal loan, let's say. I can get their loan application approved, but they may still need to come physically into a branch in order to finalize the loan and deposit account opening. And so, like, they're just a little bit, and because of that, they're paying a lot more marketing than what you imagine somebody like Upstart might pay, because you can finalize mm-hmm. everything through Upstart. You can't do that with a credit union. So they have to find five times as many consumers. Um, and so the more comfortable they get with marketing, the more the returns from all of these activities are compounding. But it all goes back to like, do you have an experience that's competitive with the the, the best other finance companies out there? And if you can be a parity with any, with a you know with a, the same experience as a Chaser, Wells Fargo, or some of these other fintechs, then all of a sudden now you can be equivalent on marketing, but now you've got the rates, right? So you're you're a better financial product at the same cost of marketing. You should win nine out of ten times in any battle.
1: Who's the ultimate beneficiary here, right? Like, do you think it's consumers or do you think it's dealers? Cause they can put more cars on the road or, I mean, do you think it's everyone really, because look, the way I see it is in an environment where money's cheap and you know, it's just sloshing around everywhere, right? Like just companies are not efficient. And it feels to me like now we're, you know, things have gotten a lot more expensive, lending's expensive. People are starting to turn over every stone and they're looking for ways to operate more efficiently. And to increase their conversion, right? Like, I mean, I can tell you that our conversion uh, in the sub and near prime segments from call it like lead to sale has just consistently dropped since January. And it's not driven by um, anything necessarily in store, but it's, it's the lending. The lending has gotten tough and it's tightened up and we just cannot convert that segment of the market. Right. And it puts us in a very tricky situation because you're missing volume targets. You have the customers coming in. They want to buy the cars. Um, and of course, I'm referring to, you know, this is not prime segment, which credit unions typically work with. But I wonder, like, do you think this is a, ultimately just a net benefit for the entire industry? And, you know, you'll see, we'll start to see uh, bigger companies, say, like CarMax and Carvana, maybe sh- uh, show some more innovation on that realm. Um, or do you think that this is more of it, it doesn't really get get, in, get into the mainstream as much and it stays more behind the scenes and, you know, you work to digitize them, but we don't see this more in the mainstream dealership side.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think at the, the very least, like the w- one benefit you'll have is consumers, right? Like consumers paying lower rates for ostensibly this, like, I don't think they actually care that much about their financial product, right? Like, it's not like if I get a, an ally or a, uh, you know, Chase loan, I'm not like, I love I love the Chase brand. This is such a, I'm proud to talk about the brand of my loan. I don't think it's like a branded <laughs> entity. I think it's it's a more commoditized product. And so I think from a loan perspective, the consumer is going to benefit. I think where the brand may come in is in the other suite of services the institution can provide. And that's where that's where credit unions win. And that's arguably where dealerships can win as well. And so what I mean by that is like if if credit unions get more comfortable doing more lending, like you often see that they don't serve this near prime segment, even though they could. And so credit unions can lend up to 18%. Like that's typical usury caps for a credit union. You almost never see an 18% loan, right? Like you almost never see that. And it's because a lot of them just don't feel comfortable lending that segment yet. But there, there is a way as they get more technologically advanced, as they get more comfortable with um, actually orchestrating and booking the loan. These loans tend to be harder to book because you tend to need more steps and more verifications and so as, as you can sort of enable that, you can serve a broader segment. And I think that's where that's where actually dealerships will benefit, which is if credit unions can get mm-hmm. more comfortable moving down the credit spectrum, that means that dealerships are more easily able to sell more cars through this credit union channel. And that works out well for both parties.
1: All right. So there you have it, folks. Go buy from a credit union. That's, that's all you need to know from today. No other takeaways. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, Chris, this has been awesome. Like just your wealth of knowledge and you've had a lot of experience and I've really enjoyed it. Where can people learn more about with Clutch your work, you know, anything? Yeah, I mean, you can go to
0: withclutch.com to learn about our company. What I would say though, if, if you're a consumer, the, the best way is to actually go, like you can experience our same platform through any one of our sort of 60 partner credit unions. And if you go to with Clutch, you can see who those partner credit unions are. We work with some amazing partners who are actually doing like we do the technology, but they do the real hard work, and they're the ones who they're the ones who are offering the great consumer service. We're the ones who are enabling that service. And so, look at any one of those sixty partner credit unions; they're absolutely wonderful institutions. And if you want to find a way to interact with the credit union, that's a, that's a great starting point.
1: Before we go to the last question, I want to do a quick one eighty and ask you a juicy question: <laughs> Does Carvana survive? Where is Carvana in five to ten years? Good, good
0: question. Yeah. I mean, I think they survive. I don't know that they survive in the same way they exist today. Um, like um, the, 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 if you look at Carvana's origin, like the one origin was, hey, we'll have the centralized pool of inventory. And if you just, just take that to extreme, right? if you take the to extreme, you're like, okay, we have one big distribution center in Kansas where we house 100,000 cars and just distribute those across the country. I think over time, what you've seen is that like this model converges to a less logistics heavy dealership. And so like the things that Carvana's has proven are, can you sell cars online? Is there a segment of the population that this is good for? The things that they're behind on the proof points for are, is this economically viable in sort of like all weather conditions? And I think the all the weather part is not yet flushed out. I think the debt they've taken on is arguably like the biggest noose around their neck right now, which is they just have massive interest payments. Could they, if they didn't have these massive interest payments and they'd finance it through equity, would it be easier to get this pathway out? Yeah. And like if they converge eventually to a more CarMax like model, but more online, does that seem like that's a viable path? I, th- I think both those are true. There's like restructuring that needs to happen between now and then uh, in order to make that happen. but. I think they, have they've proven too much to go away entirely. Uh, and so there's certainly someone that will, like, I, I think they can navigate a way out of it. I just think there's like some ugly roads they need to cross yeah. between now and then. But yeah. Somebody asked me the other day, like, would you want to run Carvana as a business? For sure not. Like I, it's so operation intensive. I mean,
1: we're going to bleep that part out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fair. Um. All right, well, Chris, last question. I'm curious, what have you changed your mind on in the last five years? What have I changed my mind on in the last five years? I mean,
0: uh, I, I think Carvana. Like, I got to give you some insight into my mindset at the beginning versus the end, too, because when I went to Carvana, a lot of it was just to see the end of the Carlsbad story. Like, we went thinking this business will never, ever, ever work, um, and actually, they proved a lot more than we than we thought possible. Like. It opened my eyes up to this like subprime and non prime segment and how they buy cars, which is very different than the segment we dealt with. And so completely changed my mind on how to think about that area. I think the other thing too is like learning through 2021 and 2020, like uh, I used to somewhat believe in this like rational market theory. And obviously it's not true at all because people like the story of Carvana has been the same for the past. Like you could see everything that was happening, my
1: friend. I I see it every day. (laughs) You you
0: could see, you could see everything that's happening and yet the swing between what they were and what they are like, neither, neither of these endpoints are true. It's somewhere in between, but like, um, people just get carried away with exuberance all
1: the time. Dude, I love it. I'm rooting for you guys. You're working on some awesome stuff. I really, you know, I really appreciate it. And this has been great. So thanks for coming on, Chris and i'm sure i'm sure we'll talk again soon and you know i'm i'm just excited to see your progress with with clutch of course thanks for thanks for having me on awesome bye